You're listening to the Sound Girls Podcast with Tori and Katie. Today's episode features Toronto-based producer, engineer, and composer Annalise Nerona, working her way up through Studio 306, Digital Music and Post, and Manta Eastern Sound. Her music engineering credits are prolific and include such artists as Jennifer Lopez, Dragonette, and Michael Dana. Manta also offered Annalise a wide variety of work in film scoring, advertising, and live-to-air studio recordings with many major label artists such as The Dixie Chicks, Blue Rodeo, and Def Leppard. Throughout her time as an engineer, Annalise has also composed and written music for placement in film and television, as well as teaching privately and for the Harris Institute. Annalise currently divides her time working between Toronto and Prince Edward County. I know you have a lot of stories to tell us and a lot of experiences to share with us. And maybe we could just start at the beginning. Like, how did you get into sound? Um, so probably like a lot of engineers, I was a musician in high school and wanted to be a musician. Thought, you know, you can do it. And uh, my parents were like, you need to have something to fall back on. So I went to Fanshawe College to the music industry arts program and did the recording engineering program. And it turned out that I was really good at it. So I was like, this is cool. I I like it. So I got out of school. I hustled everyone um, for jobs. I have some rejection letters from studios that I did work at after, but out of school with no experience. So I uh, volunteered at Music Lane Mastering, which was a small mastering house in Toronto, until I got my first job as an assistant engineer at Studio 306 in Toronto for $15,000 a year. And I had to paint the guy's house before (laughs) he let me sit in any sessions. Oh, wow. This is news. (laughs) I know. Anyway, but that job uh, had the studio manager at the time was this woman, Leanne McClarty, and her husband worked at Manta Sound. Manta Sound was is one of Canada's was one of Canada's biggest studios. It's where they did um, that Tears Are Not Enough thing. It's where Anne Murray recorded most of her records, like tons of huge records were recorded there. So, I mean, obviously you have to work hard and be keen to do everything, but Leanne had referred me to another job and also then subsequently referred me to a job at Manta Sound where I was for nine years. And I feel like that was sort of like the real beginning of my career. I was at Manta for nine years and then I went freelance and on and off have worked for a few music houses as their engineer, in-house engineer. Um, but otherwise, I'm just a freelance engineer and have been so since 2000 and I don't know, four, maybe. I have to check my resume <laughs> to tell you. Were either of you born in 2004? Oh, my gosh. Close. Uh, no, I'm joking. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Much before. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's what brings us here to now, I guess. Yeah. Do you enjoy being freelance, doing your own thing? Oh, yeah. I don't think i i can't ever go back tori are you you're a working engineer too right you're a live engineer yeah not unique to anyone who's in audio engineering is that um people will always take advantage of you the hours just get longer and longer in studios and i think in the beginning of your career it's amazing because the more hours you have the more experience you have so you take everything, you want to do everything, and 
and we had to do time cards at Manta. So I would say on average, I was doing 90 to 110 hours a week. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> and and it's not because they were forcing me to. It was because in the daytime, they would be booking film score and commercials. And then all the cool records would happen at nights and weekends. And so if I want, if you were really keen about it, you wanted to be on everything and yep. you just sucked it up and did it. Um, and I wanted to because, you know, the glamour of working on all the records and just being a part of the actual music business versus just a post audio business, you know. But then, you know, there comes a day where you want to say no and you can't. So being freelance makes it perfect. You just go, I'm unavailable that day. And that's the end of it. No one can ask you why or interrogate you about why you're not available. And then you can have a better work-life balance, which uh, at some age point or, or not even age, but at some point in your career, because you're working so much, it's like you've worked 20 years and 10 years. <laughs> Um, that you want to be able to control your own balance of life. Yeah. And I would think just putting, you know, paying your dues, putting in all that time so early on, you want those experiences. But because you put, like you said, because you put all that time in, that then allowed you to go freelance and actually be desired as an engineer because you did put all that work in so early yeah. on. And that's exactly it. Like all of the clients that hired me out of the gate were people that I had met and cultivated relationships with from being in big studios. And I think that still happens today. Like, you know, like if, if you are lucky enough to get a gig in a music studio in Toronto or in Hamilton, you're building relationships with those artists and managers and producers, you know, and, and they will um, keep you in mind when they need freelancers later. Right. Well, I'm curious because I've heard a similar story before is that people just are so keen in the beginning that they kind of bring it on themselves to take every job to do all the hours. So like looking back, it, it was worthwhile. Like what advice do you have for someone who's kind of getting into it, how to approach the beginnings. Yeah, I don't regret a single hour of good or bad. Like when I saw another sort of um, conversation spark in the list that was something along the lines of like the worst experiences. And I and to the same line, I don't think I have a worst experience. I mean, there were times where I was stressed out and tired and, and probably in that moment hated my life or my, my job or what, whatever. But when I look back on it, every one of those experiences make you who you are and they teach you where your boundaries lie and what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do. So did I even answer the question? No, that's, well, boundaries <laughs> is an interesting topic. I yes, think we can go on that tangent for sure. <laughs> Work boundaries being, yeah. Like how do you establish your worth in this industry? Boundaries are, are something that, I mean, a lot of people struggle with because your instinct in an industry like the music industry or the entertainment industry is to take everything all the time. So one is sticking to your rates. And something I learned actually not that long ago, I wish I had learned earlier, is if you are doing a quote for someone for a job, show them the actuals. Don't just show them the discounted rate show them what the rate would be if they were paying full and then show them the discounted rate so that they don't undervalue what you're doing 
Well, um, and two, I would think then they see the savings that they're getting because they're working with you. So they feel more valued as a customer. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, sh- sure. I mean, I think when the person has the money, they're just offended that you can't do it for to fit in their budget. But but yeah, I mean, the idea is that they can see that they're getting someone really good, you know, and that person is interested in their thing, even if it's at a discount or whatever. Yeah, for boundaries is usually time and money, you know. Tagging on to the whole boundaries thing. So what have you found has been um, kind of like a stress reliever, a way that you wind down from doing all of your studio work? What do you enjoy? Uh, the dog is a big stress reliever for me. She's hilarious and, and gross and a total bulldog, you know. Holly, that's um, Holly we hear in the background, just FYI. A little snores. snoring. Yeah, a little, little snorty snorterson. <laughs> she can join us at the end. I'll drag Yay. her up on my lap. She doesn't awesome. like it, but, but it'll happen. Um, and then I go fishing with my brother. <laughs> is that in Prince Actually, Edward County? Because I know you, do you spend yeah. your time in Toronto and Prince Edward County? Is that right? I say that so people think I'm don't think they shouldn't call me, but I my primary residence is in Prince Edward County. I was driving in every week to work and work in studios in the city. But since this year, I've tried to pivot it to be either like working from home or uh, I also write music for television. So like trying to push a little bit more of that so I don't have to drive into the city until all of the lockdowns are over <laughs> what will that you know? be? I, don't know. <laughs> I know yeah <laughs> yeah i would say dog and fishing are probably the biggest stress relievers <laughs> the animals the, the dog and the fishing and the nature and the nature yep. and and the nature and the beaches and the wine Ooh, wine. Oh, we love uh, wine. <laughs> okay we really love wine uh what's your favorite wine tell us um, you know what's funny? I say in the wine because we're in wine country and I love to go to wineries. Are but you? I don't I don't love oh yeah, Prince Edward County is a very deeply entrenched it's like Niagara fall Niagara on the lake. It's it's very wine country. I don't drink a lot of wine, <laughs> so I can't even tell you what my favorite wine is. You tell um, us that you love wine and then <laughs> I, yeah, I but I what I mean to say is I like to go to all of the wineries and hang out with wine. A lot of my friends own wineries, so oh. and and breweries out here. Nice. And uh, so I've tasted a lot of wine. There's one I like, but everyone out here would make fun of me for saying <laughs> it's a. There's a winery called Sandbanks, and they make a a wine called Baco Noir, which I love, 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 but. When you say it out here, people go because they use uh, their grapes are blended from Niagara region, so it's not it's not all all of the grapes are not from this region, so people always poo poo it. But it's delicious. I'm <laughs> I'm gonna get that. I can get that at the LCB. Yeah, all right, go get. Yeah, yeah you can. Sweet. You can totally get that. At the LCB. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. Ontarians. <laughs> I'm so out of the loop. I'm from Florida. I'm like I don't understand these acronyms. What's going on? I'm only booking Ontario guests from now on, so we can talk about the LCB. <laughs> all right, all right, Katie. If that's what you want to do, yes. that's a choice. <laughs> Along those lines, then, like about relaxing, what's what what inspires your like your music? What inspires you, and gets those creative juices flowing? How do you set yourself up to create? As an engineer, as a writer, as a uh, so I know you do you you mix music and you compose music. What do you feel like most represented by what line of work? Uh, I don't know. This is a problem with me. 
I, I have no idea who I am. I want to be a lot of things all at once. I think that's the nature of our business these days. As far as what inspires me, either way, it's interesting. I probably was more inspired by specific things or, or specific music earlier in my career. Now I feel like it's a discipline. Like if I have to write something, I will get up and be at my desk at nine o'clock and I will write until I get X far and then I'll take a break. But it's very methodical. I'm not waiting to be inspired. It's like it's like practicing the discipline of of mixing or of composing is like to just do the work on the regular so that you can bring all of your A game on the drop of a hat. You know what I mean? As opposed to waiting for an inspiration. So yeah, I mean, I like that better because it's like, yeah, I mean, anyone can do it, right? Like you just keep at it. You just do the work. Yeah. 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 So what are you doing these days? What's... <laughs> what am I doing these days? I'm mixing a couple records currently. There's a there's a music house in Toronto called Vapor that I love to engineer for. And most of my time in Toronto, I was working out of their studios uh, last year, but um, I haven't done a ton for them this year. I'll be back when I when I feel like I'm ready to go back into the city. So in the meantime, I've been um, mixing a couple of records, a jazz record and some other stuff like some some local artists out here. Local makes it sound like they're small artists. They're great. Like Bill Wood was the singer from a band called um, I.I., which was a pretty famous Canadian band in the 80s. And he lives out here. So I'm I'm working with him and doing some things. And then most of my time lately has actually been writing. So strangely, I've fallen into this pocket of writing music for children's show, TV shows. <laughs> I don't oh, really? know how that entirely happened. And the best parts of it are still unreleased. So I probably shouldn't say because I signed all their NDAs. <laughs> um, and then I also have recently been writing for a company in Los Angeles called uh, Music Box, which is a great there. It's a lot of pitching. So we have to win something soon so I can make some better dough from that kind of work. But but they're a great company. The woman that runs it um, is really into promoting women and BIPOC creators. And so most of their roster of writers and artists are that, which I think is really cool. And I love that they're on such bigger briefs than usually we get in Canada, which is great. So uh, that's most of my time. Like today I was writing Christmas music because all the Christmas music needs to be done in May. So that... <laughs> that's interesting. Is that true? Is, is that, they're actually oh, yeah. like cycles no, start yeah. in May to get it ready. For... Yeah, because anything that is going to air for this Christmas needs to be done. And, and like the music needs to be done before June or July. So, yeah. Is it like kid based Christmas or like romantic Christmas? Or... No, the, 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 I've, I've written pitched on some stuff that was um, Nickelodeon Christmas shows like episodes and stuff. The Christmas I'm writing right now is actually just for a friend of mine's music production music library because he uh, music supervises a lot of films, things like Hallmark movies and whatnot. Amazing. And 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 I believe Hallmark you can never Christmas. have enough Christmas music for that stuff. Oh. So. <laughs> I, you're right. So oh, yeah. Right. So today's Christmas, but I actually I feel really a, this is a, a kooky thing because 
I, if I had to classify myself as a, as a writer or an artist, I would say like indie rock or whatever. But there's something I really, really love about writing Christmas music. It's like the ideas are endless. I just right? can't stop myself. <laughs> All right, let's explore Holly today. Let's explore mistletoe. Let's talk about hot know, chocolate. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, all of those are in great. the song. I've written three so far. I have to write one more. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so exciting! So when will we? When will we hear those in a Nickelodeon thing? <laughs> oh, I yeah, those wouldn't be in a Nickelodeon thing, but those will. Pro- they'll probably get. It'll have a release like I'm a real artist releasing a Christmas EP, but <laughs> but I don't like pursue being an artist. They just like to have artists to pitch at productions. So yeah. <laughs> so. Annalise, I know you you talk about, like in your bio, you say like, oh, I do kind of like small th- gigs and then huge gigs, small, oh, small yeah. town artists, big town artists, like yeah. you've done it all. So what are, what are the distinctions? <laughs> how does it, how does your approach change? the big town artists? <laughs> um, J-Lo, I'm sorry, did I see something oh, about yeah. J-Lo? No, I know. J-Lo, uh, is, yeah, J-Lo is funny because she would never remember me to save her life. But the Jenny from the Block record, she was working in Toronto on a film and they needed to get vocals done. So for two months, every weekend, she would come in to Manta. And myself and another female engineer, actually, Nikki Servos, uh, were booked as assistants on this gig. But then the engineer from New York never came up. So we engineered all of the sessions. We each took a couple of weekends. But it was pretty kooky. I was supposed to have signed an NDA for that gig, but I did not sign it. So I wouldn't be breaking any rules to tell you how I really feel. <laughs> you? Yeah, But I don't think I should because I don't have a lot of nice things to say. <laughs> nice things to say. <laughs> the coolest thing about that session for me, despite anything I may say about her talent or her attitude in the studio, she was probably the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen up close. Like her skin was so flawless. <laughs> And then the best part of that session for me was, this is me showing my age a little bit, but it was before people carried cell phones around. So if you had to reach someone in a studio, you had to call the studio and get dialed into the the actual control room. Right. And I would pick up the phone. And so I pick up the phone and he goes, hey, can I speak to Jennifer? And I was like, who's calling Jennifer Lopez? Like, is this a crime? So I just said, yes, can I ask who's calling? And he went, it's Puffy. And it was Puff Daddy. It was when she dated Puff Daddy. So I talked to Puff Daddy on the phone. Oh, I was like, well, that's cool. I just talked to Puff Daddy on the phone. And he called himself Puffy. Sure. It's just Puffy. Hi, Puffy. How are you? I know. Hey, Puffy. Hi, Puffy. How are you doing? Um, on the tech side of it, it was pretty cool. Like she was a Sony artist and they shipped up this. Uh, I can't remember what the mic was. It big black sony mic with the weighted back end of it that has all the cross i should have looked it up before we <laughs> anyway they shipped up her mic they ship up the record was recorded on a uh, on the sony 48 track machine on their tape like it's pretty cool from that angle just the way they would do it like they would ship they were very private they would ship up a 48 track tape with just the track on it like a two mix of the instrumental and then uh sometimes guide sing that she had heard like the writer's guide sing or whatever and we would do all of the rest of the tracks like 
45, that's me doing math right there, 45 <laughs> more tracks of her singing a lead vocal wow. to that tape and then ship it to New York where they would do the edits. Mm. Like we didn't do any of the editing. It was just a, we were the, just catching the vocals, you know, but, right. but it was pretty cool for a big artist. And it was with a specific microphone that they assigned like to her voice. Like, does she always use that mic? Do you know? I, I don't know. I don't know. We weren't really let in on a on a lot of <laughs> the J Lo insiders. Scoop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. I mean, she may remember it because I think female engineers were probably more of a rarity than too. So right. So maybe she would remember, but it's not like I have her phone number or anything. <laughs> Just call yeah. Puffy. Hey, do you remember that one time? Do you when remember I me? The phone? I had that voice. I was in Toronto. <laughs> I was asking for Jennifer and you said, who's speaking? <laughs> so silly. Puffy. <laughs> Puffy. Probably the coolest session I was on is the James Brown session. Ooh. Tell us. Yeah. So I was not the engineer on that. It was, he's dead. So I was the assistant engineer on that. There was a movie that he was in with Jackie Chan called Tuxedo that oh came out God. in the year 2000. Yeah. I've yeah. never seen it. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I don't I don't want to say it's a bad movie. It's not a good movie, but I love it. It's, you know, <laughs> I haven't seen it either. But um, so I you can confirm because I have not seen it. There's a scene in the movie where Jackie Chan is like running through escaping or doing something. And he, he that barrels through a James Brown concert of some sort. And they do some sort of dancing together on the stage while he's playing Sex Machine. And then the movie continues. So his whole band came up. That was all being shot in Toronto. So the band came up and they were re-recording Sex Machine for the movie, which was, first of all, like the coolest. So it was a three-day session. So the first day was all just set up. So the, it's his actual touring band. So there was two drummers, two percussionists, two bass players, four guitar players, a horn section, a backup vocal section, keyboardist, and then James Brown. Oh, and James Brown in his live performance has the cape guy, who's the guy, he throws off the cape and the cape guy takes the cape. And... So the cape guy is a union <laughs> musician in his band on the call. So he also was there at the session and he sat on the studio floor, just like, like this the whole time. He had to be there on the call if he wow. wanted to get paid. <laughs> Which I thought was great that there's just a guy yeah. sitting on the studio floor Who are getting you? paid to be there because he's a cape guy. Why not? Um, the so the guy. first day was sounds. The second day was rehearsal. So the band ran it. James Brown was not here at all yet. It was the band did the load end, then they rehearse. There's a music director that rehearses the band a bunch of times, blah, blah, blah. Then at the end of that day, James Brown comes in and he's exactly the stereotype of himself he's like hey how's it going it's a hit like he's literally like that i had kept a running tape a dat tape running of all of the out like just so that we had it right and uh i burned it on a cd and then the cd got destroyed i can't find the dat tape so no. it's gone it's gone. oh no um but uh he came in and he was so like he would walk around to every group they would be rehearsing the song for him while he's, he's listening and he would literally be like 
no, play it like this. And he'd like move a drummer off the drum stool and sit down at the drums and play the groove. And he'd be telling the horn players notes and they all addressed him as, yes, Mr. Brown. Yes, Mr. Brown. Like that's all they ever said. Yes, Mr. Brown. Of course, Mr. Brown. And I was like, this is awesome. This is like the oldest school sort of scene ever. So after a day of rehearsing, James Brown has not gone behind the microphone once yet. Like he's like, okay, band's ready. He goes in the booth. He goes, roll tape. They, I hit record and he goes, Six Machine 2000. And they play the song once and he sings it and then leaves. It was like once, one and done. Of stuff, one and done for him. He, and it was amazing. He was amazing. He was exactly inspired and exactly the James. Like you go, oh, that's that's why you're famous. Like this thing that you do is is who you are. Like it's just your thing, right? Like it was the coolest session for sure. Wow, that is a great story. <laughs> that was a really good story. That is really a legend. Wow. Yeah, it's too bad that he was known to be an alcoholic and a wife beater. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, also, yeah. also, I didn't know that at the time of working with him. But he was a legend. Like, as a musician, he was a legend. I'm curious. So when you first started out, like, when you were doing the 90 to 100 hour work weeks, what was the craziest gig that you had to do? I Like, or like craziest memory from that time? What really stands out to you? Not crazy, but probably career informing. Um, so when I started at Manta, I was still really green. They had a lot of people who were all above me, even as, as assistant engineers, I was the greenest. And I started in September and that Christmas, Blue Rodeo wanted to do a mix for a live record that was going to be released in the States for something. And they wanted to do the mix on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, because that's when they were all around. And of course, nobody of all of the other assistants, they they were flying up their engineer, John Wynott, from Los Angeles. He's a Canadian, but he had been working in L.A. for some time. And they needed an assistant for him in the studio, and no one wanted to do it. And even though I was incredibly under-experienced to be put on a session with him, I volunteered, and everyone was like, well, sure. Like, sink or swim. So I learned the, the console automation in that room, in that particular room, poorly, but I learned it and worked through all of those holidays with John Wynott, who ended up, because of that, like, he knew I was green, but he knew I was really, really keen and I worked really hard and I was smart and uh, I could align a tape, his tape machines to his liking, which I think is sort of was the test of a lot of engineers to their assistants. And uh, because of that, even though I was the bottom of the food chain of all the assistants, any time subsequently he came back up to Canada to mix a record, he always requested me, which meant that I bypassed all those other dudes and got all these future really great gigs with him with like, I know in Florida, these names mean nothing, but he did a lot of, of big Canadian records like Bruce Coburn, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. You know what I mean? And I feel like lots of other people wanted those gigs, but now it was my gig because I like hustled that winter and gave up my New Year's partying <laughs> to to do the work. And like to this day, I still talk to John all the time. He's an amazing engineer and an amazing mentor. He taught me so much stuff. Manta was very clinical. All of the engineers like really valued 
clean sounds and, and proper engineering. No one was a gorilla recorder. And John Wynott had all those skills, but yet chose to do things like mic a hi-hat with a D112. Like, so he taught me a lot of, and, and use compression for, for sound and tone versus just as a utility, like to actually compress something. So he taught me so much and informed who I was as an engineer. And he also helped me sort of bypass a whole bunch of time you know, by taking me along with him on, on projects. So, yeah. That's an awesome story. So he mentored you. So have you taken anyone up uh, and mentored them in your career so far? I'm not, I'm not currently a teacher. Yes and no. It's interesting because the freelance world, the big studio world, so many times now I'm mixing records at home with the bulldog snoring beside me. So it's not like you need an assistant, so you're not being forced to spend time with someone and talk through process and build relationships. If people reach out to me and, and want to have a chat or to pick my brain about things, I try to always do it. Or, you know, how do you incorporate mentorship in what you're doing nowadays? Well, I feel like I just mostly try to fight for the rights of non-white male engineers, which is funny because most of my colleagues and the people that mentored me were white male engineers. So, so it's a tough spot, but I serve on a lot of advisory committees and panels and stuff like that. I think I tick a lot of boxes, but I'm also probably quite irritating to to some people just because and I think this is fine I think I'm fine with saying this in in the podcast but like the audio engineering society here in Toronto like last month for example we had a diversity panel last year almost to the, the date of this where they all vowed to do better and try harder to make sure that the underrepresented people were represented and then they do a meeting every month. And last month, I get the notice for the meeting. And it says, like, how you pivoted your life for working in a pandemic. There's like eight presenters. All of them are male. So me being a jerk, just type a flip reply <laughs> and just write, alas, not a woman has worked through the pandemic. Sigh, best Annalise. And send that off into the world. Which then starts a whole, triggers whole things where people are like, oh, well, do you want to be on the panel? It's like, no, I don't want to be on your panel. I want you to do the work and be committed to the things you said about diversity and representation. And they go, well, do you want to be on our executive committee so that you can reach out to folks? And I go, you know what? I don't want to do that either. I want you to make an effort to find women because they exist. I mean, I know they're not as many as men. But they exist. There's there's all sorts of women. If they had attended the diversity panel that they hosted, they would have seen all of those women and trans folks, you know, like anyways, I just I hope those kind of things make up the difference for not necessarily mentoring specific people, because I probably could do better in that regard of actual people. Oh, it sounds like it's really important work. It, it's really important work. You know, just to even see the faces of women on a panel is encouraging for other women. Yeah, exactly. Up. And that that was the the biggest the biggest feedback that I had heard from from women. It's like if they why would they join the AES when they don't see themselves represented at all and they don't feel seen either by the people that are there. And to me, 
I think from their perspective, they do a diversity panel. They think that they're moving the needle, but what moves the needle is to put those people into the everyday work, like make it not something that's like special or, you know what I mean? It has to just be the norm, you know? Agreed. Long ways to go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But we're working on it and yeah, being a voice is, is a huge part of it. And Elise, you mix music in films as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? I mean, I did it at Manta as a second engineer. And then I, when I became freelance, I mixed a bunch of films. But then probably what brought me back to it was um, one day a friend of mine, a Manta alum, said, hey, can you do me a favor and go record some French horns for a friend of mine in his house? And I was like, oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> like, it sounds like I'm going to have to lug all this gear and do whatever. But this this engineer who called me had been someone I assisted as a young engineer. And I was like, you know what? I owe him to do this because he is always like had my back and blah, blah, blah. So I show up at this house and it, it's it's Michael Dana who scored Life of Pi and uh, all sorts of massive movies, you know, Moneyball, a uh, bunch of other things. And he, it was him and it was for a film starring Vanessa Redgrave, which was uh an amazing film. So I recorded the French horns in his living room, which was massive, bigger than lots of studios. <laughs> um, and then he hired me to to stay on and help him mix it because he it was a independent film and he didn't have a budget for whatever. So we just sort of gorilla mixed it in his house. Um, and from there, I ended up doing three more Adam McGowan movies with him and a TV movie series called World Without End, which we won an Emmy for. I think it was an Emmy. I don't know. He won it, but I mean, I mixed it. So, And that stuff was really great. That was a fun experience because uh, Michael Dana has a lot of very skilled engineers who who were all Manta alum, actually, from from years before me. And they were mostly in L.A. and in Toronto. But the reason why I was useful to him is I could like sort of just guerrilla record in his house, which would save him money. So I was like the cheap version of the thing. But we were doing work that was still the same world class work. But that's that was my in there. But we had a lot of fun. So what we would do is he would write score. And because it was budget, all of the orchestra records were in Prague. So I would come over with my laptop and Pro Tools and I would slave his entire writing rig to my computer and we would run all of his synth stuff live to Prague and source connect to Prague and uh, like listen through my computer and see they had the video link that we would watch. And so I would just drag everyone's sessions along. Like the prog guy was the master session because he had the orchestra and I would slave my computer to, to his with time code and source connect. And then Michael would be dragged along by me. And it was like, it was before fiber <laughs> internet too. So it was also just like <laughs> kooky. We were always fighting internet like at, at four to six every day. His internet would bottleneck a little bit. I mean, all the prog sessions were like 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. because of the time difference. Like, right. But uh, it was like this period of super high anxiety and very little sleep. But also because I was working in his house and his wife would often feed us and he has two beautiful kids and a beautiful property and we were both always sleep deprived. It was kooky and bonding and a lot of work, a lot of high stress work. He He's very high functioning, but 
some of the best experiences of my life, you know, working. So I think that is probably my most fun long format <laughs> story. How's your at-home studio? It looks very nice where you are. Well, it's I wouldn't call it a studio. I would call it a room where I work because it's not a treated room, really. I mean, there's sound panels all around the front half of the room, but in the back, it's just a bookshelf. And that blue packing blanket right there has a, a chrome 1975 Gretsch drum kit under it, but the dog flips out when she sees a reflection in the, the chrome. <laughs> So I have to oh, keep no. it covered at all times. I can't play it in front of her. She loses her mind. But it's, I mean, it's good and it's not good. I am due for a computer upgrade. I won't tell you what I have now because it's always embarrassing how far behind engineers oh, I are. The because same one. <laughs> Mine's like yeah, 2013. Well. God, I don't know. <laughs> but if it works, it works. It's like a you know, firmware update. If you don't need to do it, well, it may just cause You know what? I need to do it. I need, I need more RAM than my computer is capable of having currently. That'll happen soon, but it's that that paranoia thing, you know, where you know you you have to upgrade all your software and then reinstall all the plugins that don't work anymore, and yeah, blah blah blah. So it it's like trying to wait for that time where you have the time, but then you never have the time. So it yeah, ends up happening when you're just hanging on by a thread, exactly. or that thread has broken and you have no choice. You know, you got to be back exactly. to the wall. Okay, I'll bite the bullet. I'll do this. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's, it's fine. I have a couple sets of speakers and second monitor and not a ton of front end, but and I'm running as my interface, the Apollo 8P, which is great. I love it. Since you mix, since you record, since you write, what's your happy place in that career wise? Where do you find the most fulfillment? You know, right it's now? A, that's also a tough question, because what I want to have is the variety of all of those things. But what your career allows you to have, if you don't excel in, in a specific thing, people don't know what it is that you do. You know, like, would they use someone who's a writer to be their mixer? Would they, you know, do they trust that their best writer is someone who's actually just an engineer? Like, to put yourself in a place, I like doing everything. I would say, still, because I came up as an engineer, that is the skill at which I still define myself by because I know I don't distrust where I am in that role. You know, like I, I trust that I'm good. I trust that I lay at the, at the top of my game there. But I love the pivot to writing. Like I still do that thing with engineering where you get you start getting irritated by revisions of of work and I go you know what I shouldn't be irritated by revisions like they're all valid things people clients are just trying to get what they need and it's what I've done my whole life and I it's not something new it doesn't reflect what you've done as as you, an engineer but that irritation is because you would rather be doing something else currently my love is in the writing I'm enjoying the writing but I still define myself as an engineer, so I don't know who I am ever. <laughs> Do you guys know who you are? You're going to be no. <laughs> Not really. No, it's it. Yeah, exactly. Learning you every get day. one step closer, you, you could hope. But it's interesting. Is that a Canadian thing? Like, like, how do you like to be defined by so many things? I don't know that it's Canadian. I mean, I spend a lot of time listening to people on Clubhouse. <laughs> talk about their careers yeah it's not 
a Canadian thing. It's a generational, not even generational thing. It's what you need to be now. Like I feel like if people don't work for a company, they need to just hustle all angles of audio and music industry. So people are coming at it from a lot of different places. It'll probably be way more. I think at the end of the day, if you're working in music and you're writing and you're engineering and producing, you just call yourself a producer because the producer is the writer and the engineer and the composer and the mixer and the producer, you know, like that's the the catch all for that stuff. I still do more audio post than I do music engineering. You know what I mean? So I, I don't feel like I fall into that category of music producer because I'm just working a lot of audio, like mixing a lot of commercials and, you know, stuff like that. Right. And you make music, though. You, I was listening to you on YouTube before. <laughs> oh, no. Not no. on YouTube. Not on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, what do I have All those videos YouTube? are from 2001. <laughs> That's what's so exciting, though. I love I love going to YouTube and seeing what survives, you know? No, I, know. It's I did make a record last year, but I, I I don't think any of it is on YouTube. <laughs> so it's, it's on it's on yeah. Spotify and and Apple Music and stuff. But oh, Spotify! Yeah. And I don't know why I didn't consider that. Why was I looking on YouTube? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's the that's everyone's go to when they're sitting at their computer. And I always think about that too. Like anything you ever want to hear, you go oh type type type, and it's there. And I just go, you know, nothing I've done in the last five years is on. <laughs> on YouTube. And it's because I don't really promote myself as an artist. I, I make the records and I put them out. But I feel like it's just more confusion. And it's confusing enough to be an engineer and a and a song like a composer to add artist to it just sounds too floofy or something it to sounds me. Sounds good to me and I think you should promote it here. <laughs> and we, we, should, we should put your music put your music on YouTube. I want to see the new stuff. I'll I'll listen on Spotify for sure. That sounds good. Annalise, is there anything, do you have like encompassing advice for, you know, up and coming women or anyone in this industry and how they can kick ass and do their best? I used to give women advice all the time. And then as a late comer to being a feminist, I realized that my advice was dead fucking wrong. So the advice I used to give all the time to women was that people hold you to a higher accountability in your work. It's like, they're being much more critical of what you're doing. So my advice was things like don't have relationships with people you work with or blah, blah, blah. And just like because people will judge you as getting to where you are and blah, blah, blah. And now as a feminist, I go, that's the fucking worst advice. Like be who you are. Don't change anything about you. People can suck it if they don't see that you get where you are because of the work that you do. So I suppose the only advice would be the best way to destroy someone's preconceived idea of what you should be is to succeed. Just like do the work and succeed and then fuck what they say about you because you did the work and you, you're doing well. You know what I mean? Like it's unfortunate that you still have to prove yourself and, and work harder and be more flawless and all of those things that people tell you, but it's wrong. You shouldn't have to do that. You should be able to be who you are, just like all the other dudes out there, just being who they are, good or with all their flaws and succeeding. And, uh, you know, women and trans folks should should be able to have the same. Like, we shouldn't have to consider that we are being critiqued harder. We just need to do good work 
and fuck everyone else. <laughs> That's terrible advice. Isn't no, that is, or is that good? Are you kidding? I'm yeah. so inspired. I'm like, yes. That was really yeah, I know. Good. Yeah. Fuck everyone else. Fuck everyone was... else. That's how we that's how we go forward. Just do good work. Be a good person. Do good work. Those are the things in life that you want to do. You yeah. know? Yeah. That's advice I keep hearing. And I think it's gotta be the best thing, really. Yeah, I know. I know. I feel like I when I came up, I was in the damaged women part of it like we were so taught to just be one of the dudes like blend in with them sit around and take all the jokes about their girlfriends giving them head and not be offended just be a dude like laugh along otherwise you would be ostracized and and you would just be removed from those situations right and so i feel like the way I came up was actually damaging to feminism. You know what I mean? Like now that now that people are braver and that these conversations can be had out loud, it's so much better. It's so much better. Yeah, I'm glad it's happening. I feel like your the generation after me is is making greater headway in feminism than I had pushed along. You know what I mean? The other thing too that happened in my generation, which I know because there was a, probably ten female engineers that I knew of in the 90s. And I'm the only one that is still engineering. And I feel like I did it out of spite. Like you were incapable of having a family. Like you couldn't go on mat leave and expect to have a job in engineering. You know what I mean? Or have children. And I feel like I just out of spite stayed hard on the engineering so that we wouldn't disappear. And I hope that somewhere Someday someone will know that I did that. Oh, we know. We thank you. It's out there. You did it for us. Yes. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> no, this is what this is all about, right? Like every woman who speaks on this show is inspiring someone else. And you're inspiring me. <laughs> like really. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. You definitely brought many gems of wisdom and you know, even just, you know, being yourself and that that's golden and so nice talking to you. Uh, same. I, I love this. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Check out soundgirls.org for more information. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of oral history interviews that highlights the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. One of the interviews is with Jesse Dodd, an ADR and Foley mixer, who has over 250 credits in both TV and feature films. What I've learned listening to those of you coming up is that you have no idea what's out there. You really don't know what you want to do. I just want to be in. I like to edit. Do I picture edit? Do I sound edit? What, you know, there's just all these different ways you can go. And then there are things that you don't even know that exist. I want to let people know that I exist and that this exists. Be sure and catch the full interview with Jesse Dodd, along with all the other Living History interviews, over on the Sound Girls website or YouTube channel. If you're looking for more to listen to, check out what our friends in the podcasting community have in store for you. Hi, everyone. This is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. Each episode, we talk with production sound mixers, boom ops, and other film industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location for TV shows, features, and independent films. Our past guests have worked on projects like HBO's Beep, the Netflix series House of Cards, Discovery's Naked and Afraid, and so much more. We do talk a little tech, but then we get into the stories of working behind the scenes on set. This is the Location Sound Podcast.